Salt. This simple crystalline mineral has existed on Earth for billions of years, predating life itself. Occurring naturally in our oceans and underground deposits, salt has played a pivotal role in human civilization. In this documentary, we'll be exploring the history of this life-giving mineral. We'll also be traveling through Africa, Asia, Europe, and America to see how salt is mined and the many different types found in different regions throughout the world. This is the truest example of man's inseparable relationship with nature. It's the story of salt and earth, of salt and life. The Austrian city of Salzburg, birthplace of Mozart, nestles in the foothills at the Alps' northern edge. Its breathtaking mountain scenery and Baroque architecture draw throngs of global visitors all year round. Europe's oldest salt mine lies here, beneath the Dürnberg mountain. Millennia ago, miners would descend to its depths on a wooden slide to boil and process salt into blocks. Unless you saw it with your own eyes, it would be hard to imagine such an immense subterranean city built purely to obtain salt. The mountain straddles the border between Germany and Austria. 1.5 kilometers underground are two wooden boards, one inscribed Salzburg, signifying the section of the mine belonging to Austria, and the other bearing the legend Bavaria, the German section. Although functional in marking the underground border between Austria and Germany, these humble signposts also enshrine a long-awaited peace after years of bloody battles. This 70-year-old man is a volunteer docent at the salt mine. My name is Hans Schatteiner. Ich bin hier geboren und habe hier im Salzberg Bau Dürnberg 40 Jahre lang gearbeitet. Zurzeit bin ich Pensionist. 
Ich betreibe eine Landwirtschaft, das heißt, ich habe eine Kuh und eine Ziege, die ich versorgen muss. Und äh, ich beschäftige mich auch äh, natürlich mit der Vergangenheit dieses Bergbaues und mit der Historie. This young man wielding a flashlight, a full-time high school math and PE teacher, is doing his routine inspection of the salt mine before finishing work. He finds the mine's history fascinating. Let's keep walking. Mein Name ist Michael Neupertl. Ich bin hier stellvertretende Museumsleitung mittlerweile. Ich mache Führungen zusätzlich. Ich bin jetzt seit 15 Jahren hier tätig, also schon seit 2000 und äh, es ist sehr schön hier zu arbeiten, vor allem gerade als Bad Reichenhaller, weil man hier eben geboren ist und mit dem Ganzen hier groß geworden ist. Das heißt, es ist eine innere Verbindung eigentlich zur alten Sardine da, äh, weil das das Herzstück von Bad Reichenhall eigentlich mit ist, um das das Ganze herum entstanden ist. What's interesting is that although both the 70-year-old and the 30-year-old are docents at this salt mine, they've never met. That's because Schatteiner lives in Austria and Nortater lives in Germany. They nevertheless smoothly coordinate their work of introducing the salt mine to visitors. A few thousand years ago, they may well have been sworn enemies, ready to slit one another's throats. The Dürnberg Mountain is Europe's largest salt mine and witness to Germany and Austria's stormy historical relations. At the end of the 16th century, Wolf Dietrich von Reitenau, Prince Archbishop of Salzburg, began mining and transporting salt along the Salzach River. He used the wealth amassed from this enterprise to create one of Europe's most beautiful cities. But the salt brought war as well as wealth. The Dürnberg Mountain salt mine has horizontal tunnels like a coal mine. Judging from its mouth at the surface, it would have been easy for Salzburg miners to cross the border and covertly mine Bavarian salt. Having cheaply acquired plenty of salt, the Austrian felons tried to corner the market by blocking off the Salzach River, Germany's sole salt transportation route. This infuriated Germany. German soldiers consequently marched on Salzburg, and the battle for salt commenced. It signaled a century-long war over mineral resources that ended in Salzburg's crushing defeat and the archbishop's incarceration in Hohenwerfen Castle. It was not until 200 years later when the two states' national borders, both above and underground, were redrawn, that they were reconciled. Ensuing treaties included permitting Salzburg miners to work in Bavaria, 
conditional upon their buying timber for fuel to boil the salt in the Bavarian forest. Two countries' battle for salt finally ended. The salt mine has since been remodeled into a museum on the history and past glories of these two cities. Although retired, Tantz still likes to go down the mine from time to time. Waren Sie schon mit dem Zug gefahren? Tausende Mal, tausend. These wooden boards delineating the national boundaries remind Tantz of the long and acrimonious war that Salt triggered. Born and raised here, tales of it are interwoven with his life. Having caused war and changed these geographic boundaries, salt constitutes a record of cultural evolution and conflicts. The common quest for salt has broached boundaries throughout the world and evokes a vivid history. Nature's gift of salt has been a frequent trigger for disputes amid constant conflicts over political power. Huadung Salt Lake in Unchung, Shanxi Province, is the only natural salt lake in China's central plains. Strong south winds that enter the Unchung Basin through the Zhongtiao Mountains each summer, cause white crystals to form on the lake's vast surface. Huadung Salt Lake has the longest history of any in China. The lake's substantial magnesium sulfate content gives its salt a distinctively tart taste. People living in ancient China's central plains generally cooked with the so-called bitter salt. Today, Huadong Salt Lake produces not salt, but mirabilite, whose white splinters protrude from the water in the year's coldest season and condense into clusters of glittering crystals. Mirabilite is a raw material for the modern chemical industry, used to produce household goods, like laundry detergent, Salt from this salt lake in northwestern China differs from the kind that Huadung Salt Lake produces. Many attribute the noted longevity of people in this area to minerals in the white and turquoise mixture, known as blue and white salt it produces, and which they cook with. 
Both blue and white salts and bitter salt left their mark on Chinese history. Contention for control over salt in the Northern Song Dynasty sparked three great wars and complex, protracted negotiations. The Western Shah, a vassal state, produced a blue and white salt that was cheaper and sweeter than the bitter salt which the nearby Northern Song controlled and so snaffled the Northern Song market share by smuggling it there. Persistent salt smuggling created a steady flow of silver into Western Shaw coffers. The Northern Song imposed the ban on blue and white salt in efforts to cut off the Western Shaw's main source of revenue and prevent it from gaining more power. War soon became imminent. The Western Shah was confident of victory due to its newfound wealth from salt, not to mention its heavy armored cavalry and archers whose crossbows had the longest attack range of any other. The tan good people of the Western Shah had moreover been raised in this wild desert, so the war seemed balanced in its favor. Insufficient supplies caused the Northern Song army losses of 400,000 soldiers, and successive defeats over the next two years lost the Northern Song dynasty absolute control of its northwestern territory. Compelled to compromise, the Imperial Court's trade sanctions nevertheless sapped the Western Shah's vitality. Neither side capable of another battle, their focus shifted to negotiations. The Western Shah proposed a truce whereby the Northern Song repealed its ban on blue and white salt and legitimized the tan goods, large yearly imports of it. This was totally unacceptable to the Northern Song. The Western Shaw border town of Chengchuan looked more guarded than usual on a winter's day in 1044, when Northern Song envoys arrived to negotiate. In its letter of conferment, the Imperial Court proposed sending large amounts of silver and goods to the Western Shaw each year and appointing the chief of the Tangut people king of the Western Shah, but it made no mention of repealing the ban on salt. The Song envoys waited anxiously in the guild hall for the Tangut chief, but were greeted instead by three low officials who took away the edict with little grace. The Western Shah was clearly displeased with the peace treaty. So the Northern Song lost its battle. But as the Western Shah failed to get the salt ban repealed, neither was victor, and the trade barrier between them remained.
The interests of SALT having caused enmity and hostility between the former metropolitan and vassal states, SALT effectively changed their trade boundaries. There were some who wanted to obtain SALT in faraway places, and others who wanted to sell it there. But even this fundamental business activity sparked a succession of conflicts. Cheshire in northwestern England enjoys exceptional natural advantages. A source of dairy products and site of a salt mine, it produces large amounts of quality cheese. Cheshire is also the UK's earliest known cheese distribution center. At the end of August, born cheese factory workers take their summer holidays. But there's no rest for the factory's milk-producing cows. So John Bourne, boss of the factory, and his two sons take responsibility for most of the pasture work. Whenever he has time, Bourne comes to the workshop to make cheese using the most traditional techniques. It has become an indispensable part of his life. The quality of the cheese is certainly different. Of course, I think it's much better. The reason that I'm still making cheese today when most other farms have stopped is that um, I just have a passion for quality cheese. It's about passion. There has to be some passion involved. The Bourne Cheese Factory is one of the best-known local cheese manufacturers. Having started making cheese in 1700, the Bourne family still uses Cheshire's most traditional cheese-making techniques. Salt is a crucial element of cheese-making. Though cheese made with sea salt tastes fine, it just isn't as sweet as that made with Cheshire salt. And I will show you, I will show you how I do it. That is the salt, Cheshire salt here. I take a cheese like that, yeah, into the salt, like that. Cheshire salt is extracted by heating brine from the salt caves in big iron pans. Before refrigeration equipment was invented, one pound of salt would be added to every 10 pounds of cheese, keep it fresh for extended periods. Salt has a number of parts to play in quality cheese. Uh, the first is that it acts as an initial preservative. When the cheese making process is finished, before the bacteria fully develop and before they fully develop the acid levels, the inclusion of salt will uh, do two things. It'll stop the development of some harmful bacteria. It will also slow down the acid development within the cheese, 
which is very important. And not least, it adds to flavor. It's very important for flavor because salt added to anything will bring the flavors out. Cheese can't be made without salt, and salt is everywhere in the human diet. Humble though it may seem, this ingredient is nevertheless essential. The history of Great Britain tells of how cheese accompanied sailors on their voyages across different borders and prompted wars. Britain's global expansion started in the early 17th century. Her expeditionary forces seen in the West Indies, North America, and India. In the spring of 1840, the British expeditionary force comprising 48 warships and 4,000 soldiers set out from India. Their destination, the mysterious ancient China. Salt was a vital element of the British forces' provisions. Soldiers had no time to be lonely on their long voyage because they had much to do. British warships set aside special cabins to store salt and pickled foods. Each soldier received a large bag of salt with which to repair logistic supplies on site. They indeed spent half of each day at sea on the vital task of salting fresh meat to prevent it from spoiling. As there was no canned foods, cheese, in addition to ham and bacon, was a fundamental ration for the expeditionary forces. At the beginning of this colonial expansion, salt was used as both ballast and preservative. China lost the war. Britain's artillery and warships, stocked with salted food, forced China to open up its trade. Apart from dumping a large amount of opium onto China, they also dumped industrial goods, including salt. Salt taxes accounted for half of the Qing government's national revenue at the time. Opening up its salt trade to Britain, therefore, was equivalent to surrendering China's economic lifeline. Over the 70 years from 1840 to 1913, the Chinese government lost its grip on this last economic straw as Britain purloined its right to manage salt. While the empire on which the sun never sets expanded its colonial territory, it simultaneously enlarged its salt trade. In the process, salt came to epitomize colonization and hegemony. Today, the Bourne family continues making quality cheese with the best salt. Here, there remains only a faint salty aftertaste of historical colonization and expansion. 
In Europe, salt broke boundaries between countries in the traditional sense. Along with colonialists, ships, and arms, it provoked a succession of colonial and anti-colonial wars that changed the global landscape. Heading north of Gujarat in India brings you close to a vast desert whose natural environment is extremely harsh. But then an area of salt fields comes into view. Gib Prasad's family has lived here for generations. They make coarse grain salt from underground brine and strong sunlight. Today is their harvest day. They produce salt under piteously harsh conditions, but can trade it freely. Payment of a nominal fee to the local government entitles Gibb and his family to work this 10,000 square meter salt field. This salt making income sustains their freedom and equality. Nomad peoples live on the edge of this sparsely populated desert. The men do temporary outdoor manual labor. And the women and children make characteristic ethnic handicrafts to sell to tourists. These people are on the lowest rung of Indian society. Moving from place to place, they have no fixed residence. Here in this makeshift dwelling, a mother cooks for her children on a crude stove. Even when cooking the simplest flat breads, she had salt while kneading the dough. Today, all Indian people, regardless of class or region, enjoy free and equal access to this condiment. But 100 years ago, salt was a luxury for the vast masses of people here. India, with its long coastline, produces the pure, cheap Tata salt that has a high reputation on the international market. Having colonized India in the early 19th century to maintain its salt monopoly, Britain imposed taxes on Indian salt and through legislation and raising salt taxes, banned the sale of Tata salt on the international market. The idea was to restrict the possession of salt to all but Britain. To the British, actually, that they thought of creating, constructing a wall, like the Great Wall of China. That wall never got built, right? But what the, what the British did was to plant, they did a vegetable or vegetative wall. They planted what is called a thicket or a hedge, which was a very thick 
bush of trees, uh, cacti with thorns, so you could not pass through that. Right? So their idea was that nobody should pass from Western India to Eastern India with salt unless they pass through where there were gaps in this wall which were manned by government people. But one man made salt a symbol of sovereignty in India. It was this very man who successfully fought British colonization a hundred years ago and empowered India to give all Indian people the right to make salt. The man was Mahatma Gandhi. In 1930, 61-year-old Gandhi and his 78 followers left the Gujarat Satyagraha Ashram at Sabamanti to trek 240 miles to Dandi, where they planned to harvest salt from brine and so defy the British salt tax. This was the independence movement, outstanding in Indian history, called the Salt March. Gandhi's followers were puzzled that salt should be the focus of the movement, but he told them it was the best medium for opposing the tyranny of the British government because everyone needs salt to live. So before uh, he actually begins to think of this march, Gandhi has practiced living on a saltless diet for a very long period. Uh, so he knows what uh, uh, the absence of salt could actually mean. 25 days later, Gandhi arrived at Dandi, intent on eradicating colonial trade and competition. By then, his followers had expanded from 78 to over 10,000. To welcome the dawn's first rays, Gandhi took a step forward onto the salt-covered beach, bent down, and picked up a small lump of salt. Standing barefoot on coarse salt was not pleasant, but this discomfort brought a sense of freedom at having finally defied the British salt laws. What nature gives me, nobody can control, nobody can have a monopoly over. So it's, it's also a view about who has excess uh, and who has control and rights over natural resources. And of course, uh, the natural resources belong to people and not necessarily and not in every uh, 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 sense to a government. In 1931, Negotiations between the British Viceroy and Gandhi ended the Salt March. This marked the first dialogue between Britain and India as equal parties. Today, Indian people living by the sea may collect the salt they need for daily consumption. This signifies a connotation one that salt never had in history, of symbolizing national sovereignty 
and playing a constituent part in the anti-colonial struggle. Along with colonialism, SALT broke the boundaries of sovereignty and set the stage for a tale of resistance to human oppression and of justice and injustice. Upon switching our lens to America, we find SALT has also determined the country's political pattern and direction. The famous Great Salt Lake, immediately adjacent to Salt Lake City, capital of Utah, is North America's largest inland salt lake. Not all that far from the urban sprawl, it's like an ocean at the gate of a metropolis. The Great Salt Lake landscape, with its azure blue water glistening in the sunlight, is distinct in a desolate way. West of the lake is a dry but dazzling salt beach. This 1.5 meter thick saline alkaline land covering an area of over 100 square kilometers is as hard and smooth as concrete. A natural extreme speedway and indeed a perfect location for all kinds of competitive sports. The fastest race speed on it exceeds 1,000 kilometers per hour. Big is the most common adjective tourists use to describe the Great Salt Lake. Today, salt is no longer the scarce resource it was in American history, when its value due to scarcity often constituted a knife edge between winning or losing a war. American Civil War, a landmark in America's history, broke out in 1861. But few people are aware of Salt's significance in the conflict. The war started on April 12, 1861. Four days later, Abraham Lincoln imposed a Union blockade, which was enforced on Confederate ports. As an important source of salt, the North had been the Confederate States' main supplier. The blockade, consequently, sparked a salt crisis. The blockade intensified in the third year of the war. Union armies occupied and destroyed all salt fields in their path and destroyed the water pumps of salt wells. Meanwhile, the Union Navy attacked salt-producing areas along the coast of the Confederacy. The resultant paucity of salt hurt Confederacy morale and the situation gradually tilted in the Union's favor. 
When salt became seriously scarce, plantation owners in coastal areas used their experience in the War of Independence to try and remedy the situation by sending slaves to collect buckets of seawater to boil and make salt from. But amid the intensified blockade and warfare, this method fell short of their needs. There were also some who dug soil from the sites of bacon factories, filtered it with water that they then boiled, and used the salt extracted to cure meat, which made it appear covered in mud. One Confederate official complained in his diary that although to politicians distant from the battlefield, President Jefferson Davis may seem a great builder of the country, he clearly hadn't thought of a solution or even given consideration to the salt crisis the war had caused. Having abandoned salt works capable of producing 7,000 bushels of salt every day, enough to support an army of 50,000 soldiers, Supply shortages inflicted serious economic damage on the Southern Confederate States. When the war broke out, a 200-pound bag of salt cost only 50 cents. A year after the blockade, the same bag cost $6. And in the third year, its price was $25. At the beginning of the war, the Confederate Army issued a ration list stipulating that every soldier was apportioned 10 pounds of bacon, 26 pounds of coarse grains, 7 pounds of flour or hardtack, 3 pounds of rice, and 1.5 pounds of salt and vegetables. But the Army had trouble supplying these rations. But none that are deprived of salt can win a war. And on April 9, 1865, the Confederate Army surrendered. Confederate General Robert E. Lee admitted at the conference table that his soldiers hadn't eaten in days, so requested a dispatch of provisions to them. The arrival of Union Army carts loaded with supplies brought cheers from the ravenous Confederate soldiers. The war ended with the Union's victory. A few realize the part that salt, or the lack of it, played in the conflict. It was indeed salt that reconnected the erstwhile divided territory of the United States. Meanwhile, we may contemplate mists and waves on the tranquil Great Salt Lake that stretches to the far distance. It's coming up for 8 a.m. on this midsummer's morning in Zhegong, Sichuan province. But local residents are already lining up at the Shenhai well to buy salt. Uh, 
Everyone is content to wait in line for their 10-bag quota of handmade coarse grain salt, commonly acknowledged as the best choice for ensuring the authentically tangy flavor of crisp Sichuan pickles. Sichuan people have an unparalleled passion for pickles, especially in high summer when the appetite wanes. A pot of fresh-made pickling brine produces mouth-wateringly piquant pickles by the next day. Mizio holds that good pickling isn't at all difficult as any number of vegetables are suitable. This tastefully colorful assortment also enhances the appetite. After putting Chinese prickly ash and star anise into a pot of cooling boiled water and adding zulgong coarse grain salt, rest is a matter of course. All that remains is to add the fresh ingredients. Pot is then sealed and put in the shade. A day later, the pickles are ready. Zulgong coarse salt offers just the right degree of savor. After slightly dehydrating, the lactic acid bacteria creates the pickles distinctively tart, piquant, and refreshing flavor. When mixed with chili oil, they are a perfect accompaniment to rice. Today, the people of Zhuogong take unrestrained pleasure in dishes cooked with salt. But apart from their flavor, they also imbue bittersweet memories of the war in Zhuogong that salt triggered. The Zhuogong Salt History Museum exhibits a collection of precious black and white photos of the salt-producing scenario here around 80 years ago. They show dense clumps of crown blocks, skeins of serpentine bamboo pipes, huddles of ships in the harbor, and naked, sweat-bathed brine extraction workers. A young university lecturer named Sun Mingjing came to Zhuogong in April of 1938. He captured with his camera the struggle of Zhuogong's salt industry amid the flames of war. In 1937, Japan launched a full-scale invasion of China. 
Japanese armies successfully occupied China's main salt production sites. Zhuoguang subsequently became a significant domestic salt supplier during the war. In 1938, the Japanese army sent 400 aircraft on a bombing raid over Zhuoguang. The city was neither a strategic pivot nor a military garrison. The attack's sole aim was to cut off the Chinese people's assault supply and so lower their morale. This was Japan's salt blockade on China. But Zhuogong salt workers made no attempt to escape the Japanese bombardments. They stopped work to extinguish fires and cover wellheads only when the alarm sounded. Brine boiling workers kept working throughout. So Zhuogong salt was in every sense produced from the lifeblood of its salt workers. Zugong salt output never diminished during the war. On the contrary, increasing to meet nearly one-third of the Chinese people's needs. Its revenues also supported the wartime government's precarious finances and salt workers' spontaneous donations towards the purchase of two aircraft supported the war. As salt was a vital resource to both sides, it aroused patriotism and help protect the integrity of Chinese territory. But human history is cyclical, and today this struggle continues, although in a different form. This is the largest white flat area on the Earth's surface that isn't ice. It's the Sala de Uyuni in Bolivia, South America, known as the Sky Mirror. Salt is so plentiful here that local residents have even built houses out of it. Today, many regard Uyuni as a well of abundance due to a rocketing demand for the lithium beneath its white salt bed, which accounts for 40% of the global total to make batteries for electric vehicles and mobile phones. People the world over consequently have their eyes on this huge, untapped treasure trove. There was a one-time fierce competition among Korea, Japan, France, China, and Brazil for acquisition of the mining rights for this site. Each contender put forward heavy investment plans in efforts to ensure the stable supply of this raw material necessary to gain a favorable foothold in the lithium battery market. In the past, SALT decided the geographical boundaries between countries. Today, competition for access to this new resource will redefine intangible national boundaries.